Thanks, Vinny. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Um, summer is here, and uh, it's just nice to uh, finally get past that harsh winter, and uh, it's just good to be together this morning. Um, so today, uh, I sent out an email to everyone this week. If you didn't get it, that means you don't have, we don't have your email address, so that orange card matters, because then you wouldn't get my emails, and your life won't be as good. And so um, this week, I sent out an email, and one of the things I said in that email is that during today's service, I was going to be answering the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And I'd like to begin by saying, if you're new this morning, that um, we don't talk about uh, homosexuality every week, all right? And we're not here to single out uh, one group of people and say, wow, look at how bad they are. That's not my heart this morning at all. Some of you may be even asking the question, why do we need to answer this question? And I would say that's fair. I came up with three reasons I think we need to answer this question. We need to answer this question with clarity and compassion because of the growing normalization of same-sex relationships. We need to answer this question so that we know how God thinks about homosexuality. And we need to answer this question because in our own community, there are churches that teach different things than what I am going to teach you this morning from God's Word. And here's a fourth reason, bonus reason. We're in a series called The Gender Reveal Party, talking about God's design for men and women. And homosexuality is an issue of God's design. So it fits perfectly within this series. But I have a question for you. If everyone can just kind of zero in, focus for the next few moments. I have a question, and I'm going to ask it by a show of hands. How many of you know someone personally who would identify themselves as gay or lesbian? How many of you know someone personally? Like you know, okay, keep, okay there's a second question. Keep your hand raised. Only put your hand down if you don't care that much about them and you don't love them. All right, so they're, like, that's okay. Like, you know someone, but they're not, like, close to you. Okay, so your hand is raised if you know someone personally who identifies as gay or lesbian, and you love them and you care for them. So look around, church. Look around. There are more hands here than I was expecting, and I would say that's, that's a good thing. Why would I ask you to do that? You can put your hands down. Here's why. For many of us, when it comes to homosexuality, we aren't coldly talking about an issue. We are thinking about our friends and our family who have stories, who have feelings, and we love them, and we want good for them. My tone in preaching this morning and your heart in listening today must be a reflection of Jesus. I didn't come here today as one who is angry at gay people. I'm not angry at gay people. You just need to know that. If you could see into my heart, as best as I'm aware of my own heart, and I don't think any of us are fully aware of our own hearts, I'm not angry at gay people. I'm disappointed that some Christians take God's word and say it means what it does not mean, that I can get fired up about in a hurry. But for people struggling with same-sex attraction, my heart breaks for them. I've heard a few of their stories and it is not one of those moments where I'm like, I'm better than you. It's one of those moments that goes something like, that must be so painful. That must be difficult. That's an incredible challenge in your life. Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. So we are going to be a people this morning full of grace and truth. 
even in light of the reality that we love people and don't want to hurt them. Our goal this morning is to be honest that what matters more than our feelings and stories is aligning our thinking with God's thinking. We can know how God thinks about something by opening up the Bible. So let's pray this morning before we do that. Lord, I just pray for your ever-present help this morning. Give us the gift of yourself today. Help us to hear you speaking through your word. Lord, I pray again today for humility, for an appropriate tone, and that the truth and grace of Jesus Christ would permeate from this pulpit today. I pray for your hearers today. Lord, that they would not be focused on someone else's sin and be thinking, get them, Joe. But Lord, we would be undone and broken by how sin has ravaged all of our lives. Keep us from self-righteousness. Holy Spirit, do your convicting and comforting work today. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. Amen. So here's what I want to tell you about the Bible. The Bible is not the story of God giving a lecture on homosexuality. That's a good point to say amen, okay? It's not what the church has been singing, praying, and preaching about for 2,000 years. Jeff did not lead us in a song this morning that said, homosexuality is a sin, yay, God. We didn't do that today. That's not what we're singing about. What are we singing about? The resurrection. We're singing about the gospel. We're singing about the truth, about who God is. You'll only find in the Bible about a dozen or so passages that deal explicitly with homosexuality, and you've certainly noticed that the Bible is a big book. When the Bible does speak about homosexuality, you need to know this, the word homosexuality actually isn't in the Bible. What the Bible is talking about when it talks about homosexuality is same-sex sex. So we're going to use a lot of adult words this morning, so you can giggle and laugh or be like, oh my gosh, you said that in church. We'll say worse. Same-sex sexual intercourse is what the Bible is speaking about in, the terms, in terms of homosexuality. So just want to be honest with you. The Bible does not say anything about orientation, attraction, or inclination. So what does that mean? It means that if you are a person who has same-sex attractions, it does not mean that you are automatically ousted from the kingdom of God. There are strugglers in this journey who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, who have chosen to live a celibate life, and they will be in God's kingdom if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So you need to know that, that same-sex attraction, having those feelings, saying, I am attracted to people of my same gender, that is not addressed in the Bible, and all of us are tempted to do things that are out of bounds sexually. So I need, you just need to know this this morning. I am a sexual sinner. I am a sexual sinner. There are times where I see my sexuality broken. I desire sex with people who, aren't, who I'm not married to. Men, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Even if we're heterosexual, we can still see that there's something about our sexuality that's broken, that over-desires something that God has called sin. And so when people struggle with same-sex attraction and they desire sex with someone of the same gender, it does not automatically mean that God disapproves of them. It means that's where they're tempted. 
That's where, as James says, their hearts give birth to sin. So all of our hearts have over-desires somewhere, and for some people, their over-desire is sex with someone who is of the same gender. So when we talk about homosexuality, we are talking specifically in the Bible about behavior. Dan Via, he's a scholar and he wrote a book with a guy named Robert Gangnon, and they gave two views of homosexuality in the Bible. And Dan Via, he argues for that the Bible says that, uh, he argues for the position that same-sex relationships are good and right and we should affirm them. And this is what Dan Via says. He says, the biblical texts that deal specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. To answer this question, what does the Bible say about homosexual behavior? We could go to a lot of different places. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's direct evidence and indirect evidence. But I think the place that kind of settles the issue the fastest and kind of bottom lines everything for us and doesn't leave any questions in our mind is in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 this morning. If you have an app, you can pull it up on your app. If you have a, a, real, a Bible that's actually made of paper, you can get that out. That's always a good thing. And if you don't have anything, that's no problem. Uh, it'll be right up here on the screen. So here's what I want you to know about Romans. Romans is not a treatise on how homosexuality is wrong, just so you know that. The book of Romans is, was written by the Apostle Paul to teach us how believing in Jesus Christ makes people like you and me righteous before God. That's the purpose of Romans, to hold out how righteousness can be attained through Jesus Christ. However, before Paul teaches us how to be righteous, he must convince us and show us our need for that righteousness. So starting in Romans chapter 118, all the way through Romans uh, chapter 3 verse 20, Paul is going to show that all of humanity, whether Jew or Gentile, black or white, no matter who you are, where you're from, all of humanity is morally bankrupt and condemned before God because of their sinfulness. So the verses I'm about to read this morning, they are um, unpleasant because they serve to convince us that we are a people desperately in need of God's grace, mercy, and pardon. So let's read this together. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20, this is what it says. The wrath of God, I told you it was going to be very unpleasant. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So throughout this passage, Paul is going to talk about they and them. And you're like, well, who is Paul talking about when he says they and them? He's talking about the godless and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the they and the them in this passage is people who suppress the truth and live as if there is no God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Next slide. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So far, this is what Paul is saying. He's detailing how all humanity has rejected God's clear revelation of himself and incurred his wrath. So do we believe that God has wrath? Absolutely. 
Quite frankly, the Bible talks more about the wrath of God than the love of God. If you were to pile up those verses, the wrath pile would be higher. The reason God is pouring out his wrath, his settled, fair, and righteous anger, not because God is a hothead, not just because God is someone who loses his temper, it's a settled, fair, righteous anger under control. The reason God is pouring out his wrath is because wicked people behave as if there is no God. And Paul says people don't act wickedly because they are unaware of God. This is an important point. People are not acting as if there is no God because they don't think God exists. They are acting as if there is no God because Paul says something profound. They suppress the truth. You need to remember that phrase in this message. They suppress the truth. Because Paul says God can be clearly seen in creation. What can be seen about God? You can see his eternal power and his divine nature. So there are two things that everyone is without an excuse to say that God is real. Now how much they know about God, it doesn't mean that they immediately know about Jesus. But there is an awareness in every human conscience that God is real even if they've never heard his name uttered because of his eternal power and his, div- and his divine nature revealed in creation. So what do wicked people do? And when I use the word wicked, don't think of someone on a broomstick. Think of people just like yourself before you knew Jesus. Everyone apart from Christ is wicked. Even people in Christ at times do wicked things. So what the wicked do is suppress the truth. They push it down. They push it away from themselves. They say, God, your truth doesn't matter to me, and I will ignore it. Moving on, verse 21. For although they knew about God, who's that? People who suppress the truth act as if there is no God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So here's Paul's train of thought in Romans 1. People have at least some knowledge of God, but they don't acknowledge him, worship him, or thank him. He says people think they're smart, but in fact they're foolish to live and behave as if there is no God. Now listen, there are certain kinds of people who can sound really smart by what they say, but if they're living as if there is no God, they may be smart intellectually, but God would call them a fool. Paul then identifies an exchange that takes place. So this word exchange, you need to circle it in your Bible. It's important in this passage. Exchange means to substitute one thing for another. To substitute one thing for another. And Paul's going to talk about three exchanges that people make when they suppress the truth. So what's the first exchange people make? They take the immortal God, the God of glory, the God that we worship this morning, and they exchange that God and they say, immortal, glorious God, we don't want you anymore. What we want is an idol. We want a God that we've made with our own hands. We want a God that we can contain. We want a God that thinks the way that we think. We want a God made to look in the image of man or a bird or a reptile. See, what happens is, People never stop worshiping. When people don't worship the real and living God, 
what really just changes is their object of worship. You may not be a follower of Jesus or believe in God, but you are worshiping something or someone with your life. To worship anyone other than God is idolatry. I was talking recently to a woman, she was Hindu, and we were at a party, and she was telling me about this shrine she has in her home where she worships different Hindu gods, and there's little statues there, and that's usually what we think about as Christians when we think about idolatry, worshiping false gods, but idolatry can be worshiping anything that is not God, so you can make an idol out of anything, like sports could be your idol, or jobs could be your idol, or your spouse could be an idol, your kids could be your idols, your bank account, your reputation, what other people think about you. Living to please people and not God can be an idol. We've seen some people make cars their idol, or your hobbies, or sex, could all take God's place in your life. The human heart loves to make good things into God things. Paul continues, Therefore, God gave them over. So who is God, what is, who's, God, who's God giving who over to? So God is giving over the people who have suppressed the truth, lived as if there is no God, and exchanged the immortal God for an idol. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That's where all sin begins. That's the origin of sin. It starts in our hearts to sexual impurity. Interesting isn't it, that the results of false worship often manifest themselves in sexual sin. That word sexual impurity can mean any kind of sexual sin from homosexual, same-sex to adultery, to viewing pornography, to bestiality, like the, it's just a big junk drawer word that includes all kinds of sexual sin for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And here's the second exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. I love what Paul says there. He talks about our creator and he says, it doesn't matter if no one is worshiping him, he will be forever praised. When people choose not to worship the glorious, all-powerful creator of the universe and instead to choose, and instead choose to worship creation, when they exchange the truth of who God is for lies about God, God gives them over to sexual immorality. What does it mean that God gave them over to sexual sin? It means that their punishment for idolatry was that he allowed them to go their own way and let sin have its way in their lives. So church, let me ask you this question. When you think of God's wrath, do you think of lightning bolts and floods and burning sulfur? Do you think of God with a red face, angry, saying, pestilence, floods, famine, boils? Like you think of the Exodus story and, and just God just pouring out like just terrible things on humanity? Here's an amazingly scary definition of God's wrath. God's wrath can look like giving people exactly what they want. When people don't want God in their life, 
and they want to do their own thing, he lets them. And all those things that people think will bring freedom and satisfaction and happiness ultimately end up controlling them and causing carnage in their life. The wrath of God is often passive. People think that God doesn't exist and do whatever they want, and they think, ha, I'm getting off scot-free. God doesn't care what I do with my body. God's not watching me. If there is a God, he surely doesn't have a problem with how I'm living. It's not because he's not real, friend. It's because he handed you over to be punished by your own sin. That's a scary thought. I mean, let's just not think about our topic this morning and just think about that. Maybe some of you are hiding sin this morning and you've come to church and you're playing the game and you're like, I'm just going to keep doing that because it doesn't seem like anything's really going that wrong in my life. Hey, listen, maybe God's just given you over to your sin. Maybe he's just letting you go. Maybe you think you're tricking him and what's actually happening is he saying, go ahead. If you don't want me in your life, if you want to do that, if, you, if, you, if that's what you want to do, Listen, I love you and I'm here for you and I've sent Jesus Christ to save you and rise again. But if you just think like you're getting away with something, maybe God's just letting you do it and he'll let sin just do its work in your life. He doesn't need to send a flood because sin will do the damage it always does. Why? Because sin always leads to death. You haven't faked out God. He sees, he knows, and he might just be letting you go your own way. But you can return to him, and you can repent of your sin, and he will immediately receive you home. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says this, because of this, because of what? Because wicked and godless people have rejected God, have chosen to worship idols, have fallen in love with creation and not worshiping their creator, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So what's the third exchange? Let's talk about the exchanges that have taken place. Exchanging the immortal God for a false God. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And here is strangely the third thing that happens. Exchanging natural heterosexual sex for same sex sex. That's the third exchange. So Paul calls homosexual behavior unnatural. That's the juxtaposition here, natural and unnatural. What does unnatural mean? It literally means in the Greek against nature. This Greek word was commonly used in the ancient world to speak of deviant forms of sexual activity especially homosexual behavior. Plato, Plutarch, Philo, and the Jewish historian Josephus as well 
all use the word unnatural to refer to homosexuality. So here's the big point of my message today. Homosexual behavior is a rejection of God's creative design for men and women. Homosexual behavior is a rejection of God's creative design for men and women. God has created the parts of males and females to go together. He has not created the parts of men and men or women and women to go together. Even in the creation story, the command of God to the man and the woman to subdue the earth, have dominion over it, and multiply was sexual in nature. To a man and a woman whose bodies fit together, complement one another. Why is homosexual behavior wrong? Because we weren't designed for that. And in the flow of Paul's argument, homosexual sex is a clear illustration. Paul could have chose any illustration, but he chose homosexual sex as a clear illustration of what happens when people reject the reality of God, reject Him as the Creator, reject Him as glorious, reject Him as worthy of worship, and suppress the truth about Him. The only argument that people have for homosexual behavior as a good thing is to suppress the truth about God. Some people argue, you need to know this, some people argue that when the Bible is talking about homosexual behavior, it is talking about sexual oppression. Like what people really think is Paul doesn't have in mind same-sex committed monogamous relationships for a lifetime. What Paul really has in mind is relationships between a man and a boy or a master and a slave. The argument goes that the Bible actually has no concept for what people are today saying is acceptable to God, monogamous, same-sex, committed relationships. I came across this quote in my studies. It's by a professor from the University of Nebraska. His name is Lewis Crompton. Lewis is a self-identified gay man and a pioneer in gay studies. And Lewis Crompton wrote a 600-page book called Homosexuality and Civilization. And this is what he says about Romans chapter 1. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness, have read Romans 1 as not condemning homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of his, this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. There is no intellectually honest or thoughtful way to argue that the Bible is unclear about any kind of homosexual behavior. It's just not there, friends. It's not a debate to be had. 
there's actually no reason to engage the debate because the debate is fictitious based on lies and terrible exegesis and hermeneutics and reading of the text. It's not there. All that's there is suppressing the truth. But just so you don't think that I'm picking on one group of people today, Paul, or Paul is just picking on one group of people today, listen to what Paul says at the end of this passage. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so he's not just talking about people who practice same-sex sex, he's talking about all people who suppress the truth and live as if there is no God and live wickedly. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Wow. Whoa. Let's call a time out there. They disobey their parents. Hey, parents, it's no small thing to raise a rebellious child. It's no small thing to let your kids disobey you. When they're grown and they make their decisions, that's on them, not you. But when they're under your care, their rebellion is not a small thing. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So following the third exchange, there's one final handing over. God gave them up to a depraved mind. This produces a host of things that don't please God, thoughts, attitudes, actions, the sentence for all of which is what? Death. So in one sense, church, we should not make too much of homosexual sin. Given the long list of sins Paul mentions, I don't know about you, but when I read Romans 28 through 32, I see some of my sin on that list. It's a good spot for an amen. Homosexual sin is not the worst possible sin one could commit. And yet, the fact that Paul singles out homosexual relations as a clear example of the human heart suppressing the truth and turning away from God suggests that we must not act like it's no big deal what the Bible underlines as particularly egregious rebellion. And listen, here's what we need to be so careful of. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but catch this, but also approve of those who practice them. It's not even okay to be okay with homosexual behavior. And you may be like, it's not my life. Hey, listen, I know it's not your life. But we can't be the kind of people who say, oh, it's fine. God doesn't have anything to say about that. He does. And we can't be the kind of people who approve any of the sins that Paul mentioned. So I have three closing thoughts for you this morning. Number one. These are kind of my application points. Number one. The real issue is repentance. 
Few things in life are more important than repentance. It is so important that throughout the Bible it is clear that you do not go to heaven without repentance. Ezekiel 18.30, repent and turn from your transgressions. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Paul said in Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So, as I want to be crystal clear, homosexual sin is not the worst sin. Here's where the issue becomes. Is it a sin to be repented of, or is it a lifestyle that we can celebrate? And here's the cultural, and even within the church, there's this push to say, let's not call people to repentance for homosexual sex. The Bible doesn't leave us that option, friends. No doubt the church is a place for broken and imperfect people like me and like you. That's what the church is for, broken and imperfect people. Broken people who hate what is broken in them and imperfect people who denounce their sinful imperfections. The church is a place where everyone gets called to repentance. Liars, cheaters, self-righteous religious people, the greedy, gossips, adulterers, people who are angry, people who are addicted, people who are lazy, people who are lustful, the selfish, those who throw pity parties for themselves, and those who engage in same-sex sex. The church is a place for equal opportunity critiquing of sin. Every sinner, no matter what their sin is, is called to repentance. What's repentance? Repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in life. You change your mind about yourself. You change your mind about your sin. You change your mind about God. And then you change as God works in you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the second thing I want to say. Acceptance and affirmation are not the same thing. There's a difference. Accepting someone means that you welcome and love them as they are without requiring them to change. We need to do this with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers, and with everybody in this room. People can sense your disdain for them. As followers of Jesus, we are a people who throw our arms wide open to all sinners. But to affirm someone means that you agree with all they do. Let me just ask you this question. Do you affirm all that you do? Of course you don't. There are many days where I lay in bed at night thinking, I don't affirm everything I did today. I accept all my kids, but certainly don't affirm all of their behavior. Some of you may not like what I'm about to say. We must be a church that accepts everyone. Homosexuals are welcome at Spring Valley Community Church. And you should feel free and even desire to invite anyone, no matter who they are or how they sin, to be part of the community here. We will accept anyone, but that doesn't mean we will affirm anyone's sin. What will happen is we will invite all sinners to repent and leave their life of sin. That's what we're going to do. There's this amazing story in the Gospel of John. 
in John chapter 8. There are these really religious, self-righteous people who uh, wanted to trap Jesus. And so in order to trap Jesus, what they did is, is they found, they probably set her up, this woman who was having an adulterous relationship. And what they did is, is they caught this woman in the act of adultery. And they brought him, they brought her to Jesus and they threw her on the ground at Jesus' feet and said, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we are to stone this woman. What do you say? Jesus doesn't say anything. He just starts writing in the ground and we have no idea what he was writing in the ground. And then Jesus looks up and he looks at all these stuffy, self-righteous religious people and he says, those of you who have no sin can cast the first stone. And then Jesus kept writing. And the Bible says this, from the oldest to the youngest, these super religious people started walking away. And then it was just Jesus and this woman. Could you imagine what that's like? She's probably partially dressed and completely embarrassed and she's standing with this rock star of a rabbi and it's just her and him and he looks at her and he says to her where'd all your accusers go where are all the people who are here to condemn you and she says they're gone and Jesus looks at her and he says neither do I condemn you? But then he says, go and sin no more. That is a model for how the church of Jesus Christ loves people steeped in sin. We drop our rocks. We show them love and we tell them to leave their life of sin, just like Jesus has done with me and with you. Friends, it's a sin to treat one group of sinners as worse than every other group of sinners. We're not gonna do that. Here's the last thing I wanna tell you today. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. We must be a people known for our love. Love for God, love for his truth, love for one another, and love for people who are different than us. Love for the people God has put in our lives. Is the love of Jesus going to compel you and compel me to love our homosexual friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors, or are we going to act like they are the worst of the worst kind of people and keep a safe religious distance from them because they make us feel uncomfortable because how we feel is the most important thing? We can't distance ourselves from people that Jesus died for. Our priority with people far from Jesus is not to get them to agree with our beliefs about homosexuality. Our priority with people far from Jesus 
is to introduce them to Jesus. Our goal is to see them fall in love with the Savior of their souls. It's not. It's not. You need to think the same way I do about homosexuality. Do we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Do we believe he will move and convict and work in people's lives? Is there going to be a moment where we challenge someone to follow Jesus in their sexuality? Of course. But listen, we need to stop saying things like the gay agenda. Do you know what people hear when you say gay agenda? They hear anger and vitriol and you are the same people who have oppressed me and rejected me for years and I am not going to feel welcome where you are. It's not the gay agenda. Satan has an agenda and it's to destroy people. Call it what it is. He is working in people's lives to hurt them and destroy them. And we want to be freaking political about it. How dare us? There are people going to hell. And I know you're worried about your children and grandchildren. I have children too. And you know what? It is going to be awkward to explain to them what homosexuality is once they learn about sex. But you know what I want for my kids? A big, fleshy, bleeding heart for the souls of their friends, whether they're raised by lesbians or not. Jesus didn't run from people. Jesus didn't do the holy huddle. Jesus was often accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. What are we going to be accused of? Being upstanding, nice, suburbanite Christian people? Or are we going to get our hands dirty? Are we going to love the unlovable? Are we going to show people the grace of Jesus Christ? People will go to hell apart from Christ. And some of us are fine with that because we can't get over ourselves to get close to people who are gay. That's a place for repentance in my life and in yours. I want to challenge us not to define people by their sexuality, even if they define themselves by their sexuality. But let's see people who are broken and hurting and need a life-altering encounter with our risen Savior. Jesus sees beyond our definitions and orientations and into our hearts. He sees the broken places of our sexuality. Like he's seen mine. And he calls us home. We can't call anyone home we don't love and we look down at. You can't share the gospel. You can't share your life. You can't share God's love with people that you feel better than. Are you willing? Am I willing? Are we willing to love anyone in the name of Jesus Christ? What the Bible teaches about homosexuality absolutely matters and it's not remotely unclear. It's a sin. However, loving our neighbors and introducing them to Jesus is our calling.
It's our calling. The last thing in my notes just says pray. I'm out of prepared words. So let's stand together today. Spirit, I pray you do your work in this room. Lord, I pray we'd be the kind of people who love deeply. Lord, I'm really sorry that sometimes I see homosexual couples and I It's just hard for me. And God, I just pray that you would continue to renovate my heart, not to find people by their sexuality, but see the people who are in need and who are hurting. And God, I pray you'd help me and help us to love like we've never loved before. What will change this nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it doesn't mean that we're going to just pretend that laws that are being made don't matter, and it doesn't mean we're not going to pray, and it doesn't mean we're not going to have a voice. But Lord, I pray that we would be full of grace and truth. I pray we wouldn't be a people who slip into rhetoric, post stupid and unkind things on Facebook. Lord, the truth is, you win at the end. This world is not our home. We are aliens and we are strangers looking for a better country. We are sojourning in this place. And along the way, we want to bring as many people home to the Father as possible. Renew our passion for evangelism in this church, inviting our friends, having people far from Christ in our homes in these rows that's what it means to follow you Lord to be a witness Lord we will call sin sin and we will also trust the work of your spirit and we also ask you to send people in our, into our lives that are hard to love and God I pray that we might be Jesus to every person we encounter. Give us soft hearts, God. Lord, empower us now with the Spirit of God to be the people of God wherever we are. We honor your name this morning above every name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning.